As Marcus said, my name is Terry Dykstra. It's so good to be with you all this morning. So grateful for the opportunity to preach and to give Eric a Sunday off of preaching while he is with family. Um, as Marcus said, I'm the campus minister for Texas RUF International. Um, if you haven't heard of RUF or campus ministers, I know you all have had others come. But you can think of me as Redeemer's assistant pastor to international students at the University of Texas. That's also an appropriate way. Uh, to think about what I do. Um, but um, as Marcus said, uh, Redeemer supports the work. I'm so grateful for the support and partnership of Redeemer, of many of y'all, um, as well as the office space in that yellow house across the street. Really grateful um, to be able to keep some books there and have a quiet place to study. Um, but would love for y'all to continue praying for the work, um, as I know you already are. Um, we're gearing up now that we're in July, almost mid-July, um, for another school year coming up of uh, where, as always, we hope to welcome the nations. We hope to explore culture with them, American culture, but also explore their cultures and ultimately explore the gospel with them. So if you're interested in, in learning more about that, I'll stick around for a little bit after. would love to just talk to you. Of course, like if you talk to me, you're like, there's no obligation or anything, so don't be afraid of me. I feel like I'm pretty like nice and, and unassuming, but I am tall, so like I know that's intimidating. Um, but would love for you all to pray with us, and if you're interested in maybe hosting or, or even joining us, partnering with us, participating with us, um, come talk to me. I would love to, to figure out where and how you can do that. So this passage, you know, thinking about neighbors, loving our neighbors, um, it, it reminds me recently about um, the, the early days of COVID, and it's not over, it's getting better, but um, if y'all remember, like, the March to May, especially of 2020, um, you know, daycares were closed, most schools were not meeting in person. Uh, for me, I could not go to campus, could not meet with students face to face, and even though we discovered Zoom, and FaceTime, right, like, which is great, technology, glad we, we had it, glad we still have it, um, but it still was super lonely to not actually, like, be together. Um, it feels isolating. Uh, Andy Crouch, who's written a few books, he has a new one out called The Life We're Looking For, where he explores basically our relationship with technology um, and also talks about how, in part, even though technology has connected us um, to basically all knowledge ever and every place, um, we are increasingly lonely, anxious, among other things. And obviously, the effects of the pandemic uh, have added to those feelings as well of loneliness, of anxiety. Um, but, you know, we don't know why God um, brought this pandemic or allowed this pandemic. But there probably is some good that has come out of it. For, for me and my family, one of those things was getting to know our neighbors, you know, because we couldn't go to church or go to school, go to work. Um, it was really nice on Monday mornings. My, my oldest son, Arthur, he's four now, but he was not even two um, at the start of COVID. But uh, he, he still loves garbage trucks, recycling trucks, basically like any machines, but especially, you know, the trucks driving around, dumping the trash out. And so every Monday morning, we would go and follow the trucks around our neighborhood as they picked up all of our trash and recycling. 
And, you know, walking around the neighborhood with everybody else stuck at home too, we got to see all of our neighbors with similar age kids also pursuing the garbage and recycling trucks. And be like, whoa, you too? Cool. Like, we're not alone in this. Um, and that was, that was really great, especially on our street. We realized, like, wow, there's, it's made up of almost of a bunch of families with young kids, um, young couples, young families. And so, you know, that was, that was really life-giving for us to have, to make friends on our street, right? Friends that we could see and would see pretty regularly. Uh, but even people that we could actually, like, be together with. You know, we, would, we started um, some nights every once in a while after the kids were in bed, meeting on somebody's driveway and just hanging out, um, talking, joking, interacting with other adults, which we all were, were missing and wanted more of. And so that was really great, you know. Um, we, we all know how much we're made for fellowship, for community, um, being known, being present, right? And that's part of why God even gave us the church, right? That we would be in community, that we would know others, but that we would also be known. Um, it's a life-giving reminder of the fact that every one of us is made in the image of God, who in himself is perfectly relational, so he made us for a relationship. But as we come to our passage this morning, it, it begs the question of uh, for whom are we made for relationship with? And that brings us to my favorite parable uh, from our gospel reading, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer that Jesus is interacting with that, that first asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, then asks a follow-up question, uh, who is my neighbor? This, this second question was better than his first, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, what can any of us do to inherit anything, right? Like, there's not actually anything we can do. But his question, who is my neighbor, is still off track. Luke says in verse 29 that, He's asking this question desiring to justify himself. He's asking who is my neighbor in order to make his case or show Jesus his resume for like, yeah, I actually have uh, met the requirement of the law, so can I have a little more assurance of eternal life? Even though he kind of like yada yada is the part about loving God perfectly, totally, all that, but uh, we'll leave that aside for now. But so he's, he's desiring to justify himself, and it's understandable. It would have been uh, expected for this man to think um, of his neighbors as his fellow lawyers. Um, those, you know, he went to, I don't know if law school was a thing, but those he studied with, fellow Jews, right, fellow members of the covenant. For us, who do we consider our neighbors? Maybe it's fellow Christians. Uh, maybe it's those who have the same thoughts of us, either politically or socially or otherwise. Maybe it's those who even live in our same neighborhood. Of course, that's appropriate, or even same type of house or living situation. Whoever we think of as our neighbors, it can probably, in our case and in the case of this lawyer, be reduced to those like us, right? That's who we think of as our neighbors. That's even maybe who we think of as our friends. But Jesus also reminds us, as he tells this parable, of what is actually true about us. He tells the story, and the man in Jesus' story is stripped, he's beaten, and he's left half dead, as verse 30 says. And Jesus here, and also the rest of scripture, paints a very clear picture, an oblique picture, of what is true about us and what we are like. 
Scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. Scripture says that we are enemies of God, that we are objects of wrath, Romans 5 and Ephesians 2 again, and that we are children of the devil, according to 1 John 3, verse 10. That picture is bleak, right? That's, that's maybe not even how we would start if we're meeting somebody for the first time, like, yeah, this is what is true of me. That's probably not who we want to be neighbors or neighborly with. But obviously, Jesus has a better understanding of what is true of us, and so does Scripture. Like the man in the parable, we are without hope. The man in the parable is left naked, beaten, alone, and it says half dead. Again, Scripture says for us that we are fully dead, so it's a little bit more uh, bleak than, than at least being half dead. But for both situations, if there is any hope for us, if we can cling to anything, it's that help or mercy would come from someone else, from someone who is in position to restore us, to help us, and to save us. Jesus tells this parable to show us that we need help. And by help, it doesn't just mean like we just need like a nudge to get over the edge. We need total restoration. We need total help because our situation is so bleak. So, beside, we're, we're going to ask the same question as the lawyer, but not desiring to justify ourselves. But let's first ask who. Who is a neighbor? Who will help us and who will be our neighbor? Telling this story to a religious lawyer, again, not a courtroom lawyer, but an expert in Old Testament or religious law, his idea of neighbor would have been fellow Jews, would have been fellow members of the covenant, those like him. So as Jesus is telling this story, when he gets to the part where he says, so a priest comes upon a friend, comes upon the man who fell among the robbers, that lawyer, anybody that was with him would have been like, well, yeah, of course, and like he's going to save the day, right? Uh, kids, think of your favorite superhero, right? I'm partial to Batman. Maybe for you it's Spider-Man or Black Panther or uh, Captain Marvel or somebody else. Um, if Jesus was telling the story to, to us, you know, or if he knew about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, he might say, now by chance, Spider-Man was going down that road. And we would think, like, great, he's going to save the day. It's perfect. Um, but what we see in this passage, verse 31, it says of the priest, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And that would have been surprising. You know, it's maybe not to us because this is a pretty familiar story. But that's the guy who's supposed to help. But Jesus continues. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. So, you know, maybe not a superhero, but maybe somebody more like a policeman or a fireman or um, maybe second tier type hero. But again, verse 32, he also passed by on the other side. Again, the priest and the Levite are who any Jewish audience would have expected to help in this kind of situation. But they both keep going. Even though they saw the man, it's not that they didn't see him. They walk right by him, and they intentionally pass by on the other side. And it's true. Maybe they had a good reason. There were purity laws for Jews about not touching dead bodies. Um, for the priests and the Levite, you know, it would have been inconvenient to do so and have to go through a whole, like, purity 
ritual for at least a week. Um, if the body was dead, of course, passage says he was, was only half dead, but um, you know, who would, who would offer sacrifices for the people? Who would teach if they became unclean and then you, know, you gotta shuffle everything? Um, there weren't any campus ministers to offer sacrifices back then, so you know, a little more, a little more tricky. But um, so those those laws existed. But any Jew was also obligated by the law to help a fellow Jew. And so they keep maybe the other parts of the law, but they don't keep that part of the law, and they keep walking. Um, and that was the law that would take precedent that you help a fellow Jew, that you do help your neighbor, but they didn't help. But Jesus' story continues, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now Samaritans, um, Samaritans did not get along with Jews. Uh, the Jews thought of Samaritans as those who married the wrong people, worshiped the wrong gods, um, that's only some of the reasons that they did not like them, but they had nothing to do with them. Um, and the other passage that says Jesus had to go to Samaria is, is funny and a little ironic because normally Jews would just go around Samaria, but Jesus actually like goes to Samaria to meet the woman at the well in John chapter four. Anyway, this brings us to our second question. So we've talked about, um, or before we get to the second question, we see in the setup, as Jesus is talking about the priest and the Levite and then the Samaritan, the Samaritan is already being more neighborly than the other two. He, neighbor, again, can most simply be defined as one who is near. That's often how it's used. That's basically exclusively how it's used in scripture, especially. But we see the priest, we see that he was going down that road. We see for the Levite that he came to the place but then for the Samaritan, we see that Luke records it in the way we translate it. The Samaritan came to where the man who fell among robbers was, and he went to him in verses 33 and 34. So we already see, just based on the proximity of, of how they're traveling and how they're going to him, like the Samaritan is intentionally like going to the man. And this brings us to our second question. How do we love our neighbors? How does the Samaritan love the man and help the man who fell among the robbers? And this is all in verses 33 to 35. When he saw him, he had compassion. When I was an RUF intern, my campus minister, uh, I remember, explained compassion as with suffering. That's basically like how you break down uh, the Latin. And um, a book that I really love that I read last month called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland talks about Jesus' heart for his people. Um, and he talks about like uh, one of the verses that, that calls Jesus our advocate as standing next to us and on our side with us. Of course, Jesus would not just stand with us, but would take our place. But that's what compassion is. It is with suffering. The Samaritan goes to him and enters into his suffering by binding up his wounds, by pouring on oil and wine, giving of his resources freely. The Samaritan also sets this man on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. This road was known for being super dangerous. Um, these kind of attacks were, were pretty common on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho because it was a pretty steep descent. Uh, 
from one to the other and uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there was lots of rocks, hiding places, you know, for people to, to come out and to, to assault others traveling that road. So the Samaritan was riding on his animal, but now he's put this uh, half-dead Jew on his animal. So he's opening himself up to a similar fate because he doesn't have the efficiency of, of his animal anymore. And also an inn is not necessarily a safe place uh, for him. You know, innkeepers were potentially a shady bunch. But also if he presumably went to a Jewish town, if a Samaritan brought a half-dead Jew into a Jewish town, people would be like, wait a second, like, that's the guy who did this, right? Um, but it's just a parable, it's just a story. Um, but anyway, all that to say, the Samaritan is taking great risk in order to, to help this man, um, great personal risk and sacrifice on his part. He gives two days wages to the innkeeper that would have been good for two weeks or so of room and board at the inn. Plus, he also promises to repay any other expense. And finally, he promises to return for the man and to come back and to pay whatever else is owed. This obviously is all very generous and sacrificial, and it should sound familiar to us, right? Who else do we know who came to his people? Who else do we know who had compassion on his people as he came to them? Who else do we know from Scripture who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant? Who gives rest to those who are weary and heavy laden? And who promises to come back for his people? Like the man who fell among robbers, every one of us needs this kind of generous, sacrificial, and comprehensive mercy. Because again, the picture Jesus paints of us is that we are naked, we have nothing, we are completely vulnerable. But we also are beaten, we are limited, um, and are promised death because of sin. And while the man in the story is half dead, uh, scripture tells us that we are fully dead. But the good news for us is that God himself, like the priest and the Levite, didn't just pass by on the other side, but he came to us to show mercy and compassion to us through Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, who became man, to be with us and to take our place. Also that we would be restored, also that we would have life. And this begs the final question, why? Why would God help us that way? Why would God do that for us? Why should we then in turn go and do this for our neighbors? We could even ask for this story, why would a foreigner go to all this trouble for a Jew, for somebody who, if he was not so vulnerable and destitute, would probably despise this man? We've already answered a little bit, but the simple answer is because God does it for us. The one unlike us, the one who needs nothing from us, but has everything, has love and is love and life, and has all that to give and gives it freely to us, who were his enemies, who need it. Unlike the lawyer, we aren't looking to justify ourselves or prove ourselves. Each one of us needs the compassion of Jesus in order to come back to life, in order to be restored. Scripture tells us that God's love for us and his generosity towards us is just waiting to burst forth. Uh, again, Dane Orland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, talks about it like a water balloon, right? Like just the tiniest poke and like you're soaked, right? It doesn't just, I mean, I guess you could poke it to where it trickles out, but 
it's pretty, it's pretty fragile, right? Um, God's love for us, likewise, just needs that like gentle prick, and we are doused with it. And as he restores us, as he cleanses us, he gives us the opportunity to go and do likewise. Because again, God made us in his image. He made us to reflect him to the ends of the earth, but he also uh, made us for relationship, made us to be in community. The gospel tells us how God loves us, and the Samaritan is an example of everything that he does for us. But it's easy for us, like the lawyer, to focus on the how, right? To focus, especially for us, on ourselves individually, how we earn salvation, how we make ourselves right, or how we inherit eternal life. But what Jesus shows us in responding to the lawyer with this question, or responding to the lawyer's question by telling the story, is that his who question was on the right track, but not so much who is my neighbor, but the question, who am I? The examples Jesus gives us of the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, at the end he asks which of the three proved to be a neighbor. He's essentially asking, who are you? Who are you in the story? Which one are you? So the question at hand is not so much what do we have to do? What haven't we done yet? The question is our identity. Who are we? Are we enemies of God? Are we still objects of wrath, dead in sins, naked and beaten on the side of the road? Or have we been restored? Have we been saved by the one who came to us and had compassion for us? Are we counted as God's children through Jesus' sacrifice and by God's spirit of adoption? Are we the new creation that Paul talks about in the epistles? Our situation is so bleak that we need a new identity. We need it to come for another. We need to be adopted into the family. And though we often prefer to have the final say in our identity, we see this culturally especially, the picture we get from scripture is, is not pretty um, of what our situation is. So as much as we can say, as much as we can try to do to change our identity, um, it's not... That's not enough. But it's also our identity comes from the one who has the authority to change our identity. And we see that God saves and restores us because of his identity as well, because it's who he is. He is love. He is life. Again, the lawyer first asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, there's nothing we can do to inherit anything. Are we part of the family or not? It's easy to focus on action. Andy Crouch, I believe, is the one who said this. I might be mistaken, but he said the most American genre of writing is the to-do list. And I, if I did not have to-do list, I would not get anything done. Um, so I'm guilty of that. But um, the question of who is my neighbor and the question at hand in this passage in all of scripture is who are you? So if God and his love for us has changed us, that's what enables us to go and do likewise, to obey the law and to strive to be godly and to follow Christ's example. But loving our neighbors is more than just having stuff in common. Jews and Samaritans have nothing in common. And the only thing we have in common with God is that he made us in his image and all the attributes that that we share. But he shows us the way. 
Even when we were his enemies, even when we had nothing to give him, he came to us. He became our neighbor, he loved us, and ultimately he sacrificed himself for us. So I'm going to leave you with this quote from another book. Uh, I know I mentioned a few books this morning. Um, This book is called Seculosity. It's by an author named David Zoll. And um, it's a really good book about basically all the places that we that we look to to justify ourselves in our lives, whether it's how busy we are, um, how, how well we handle romantic relationships or even marriage, parenting, all kinds of things. Any one of us knows, you know, we, our other scriptures from this morning talked about the law, right? And that's not to say the law is bad. The law is good because it shows us God. It shows us the one who loves us and who gave himself for us. Um, But we know from even like our cultural laws of busyness and so on, that trying to prove ourselves, trying to do enough to be good enough is exhausting. Um, If you don't know that, you could try it. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, But it is exhausting because we can't do it, because we are dead and because we have nothing. But I'm gonna leave you with this quote. I think this sums it up pretty nicely. The law commands that we love perfectly, but the gospel of Jesus announces that we are already perfectly loved. So with that, let's go now to God in prayer who loves us and who has changed us. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you came to us and that you had compassion on us. Father, please be merciful to us. And please, Lord, as you uh, shower us with your love and mercy, help us to go and do likewise. We pray that you be glorified in what we do. We pray that you would reveal yourself uh, to our neighbors through us. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.